If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In 1906, strange things began occurring around the Midlands village of Great Wyerley. Horses, cows and sheep were found lying in fields with their stomachs slashed. In their hunt for a culprit, the police fixated on one man, a 28-year-old solicitor named George Adalji, leading to a miscarriage of justice that would expose the simmering racial tensions of Edwardian England and even involve one of the country's greatest crime writers. This is a story told by Shrabani Basu in her new book, The Mystery of the Parsi Lawyer, and I spoke to her to find out more. Thanks very much for joining me. Um, your new book is The Mystery of the Parsi Lawyer, and it tells the story of one of the most fascinating criminal cases in British history, which was also one of the biggest miscarriages of justice. For people who might not know anything about this story, can you introduce us to the case and where you pick it up. Right. So let's start with the Parsi lawyer. Uh, Well, uh, Parsis are from India. 
they are Zoroastrians from India. So that's that's the Parsi bit. And uh, the action happens in a mining village in uh, the Midlands, in a small village called Great Worley. Uh, this is set in 1903. And um, this village is suddenly uh, subject to terror. The villagers are terrified because they are having um, cattle are being mutilated. It's a gruesome crime. Horses are being slashed. They're being left in the field to die. And this has been going on <clears throat> with increasing escalation for six months. And the police haven't a clue. Now, while this is happening, there's also lots of uh, letters, anonymous letters that start circulating. And they are pointing to this one Indian f family that live in this village. And this family, uh, that's where the Parsi comes in. Uh, he's the father is the vicar of the village. He is a Parsi from India who's converted to Christianity. His name is Shapurji Edalji. And he is married to an English woman, Charlotte, and they have three children. Now, all the suspicion is being directed at their eldest son, and his name is George Adalji. And that's our principal character in this book. So moving on from there, how does Arthur Conan Doyle come into this, this mystery? Yeah, so of course, Arthur Conan Doyle quite unexpectedly appears in the story as, as a major character, doesn't he? Yes, absolutely. It's, it's a two-hander, really, between these two. And uh, what happens is... Once the police, you know, we need a suspect, they can't get anybody, they finally arrest George Adalji. He claims he's not even been in the field, he's never touched a horse in his life, uh, but there he is, he's arrested. 55 minutes, the jury decide he's guilty, he is uh, imprisoned. But because the trial is so faulty, there's a campaign to free him and he is released on parole. But of course, the crime stands as it is. And uh, he can't practice as a solicitor. He can't do anything. Um, in case I've missed it, um, he was a 28-year-old solicitor working in Birmingham. So that's our George. He's a very awkward person. He's, um, he's got bulgy eyes. He's shy. He doesn't have too many friends. And suddenly, you know, this person just becomes, he's like the Quasimodo of the village in a way. He is the suspect. He is imprisoned and... Um, then when he comes out, he just, he has nowhere to go. He has no job. And in prison, he's been reading Arthur Conan Doyle's books. And he says, this is the man who can save me. And he writes to Arthur Conan Doyle and he says, help me clear my name. You are the one who can save me. And so Arthur Conan Doyle puts on the hat of Sherlock Holmes and actually investigates this crime. And it is the only crime that he personally investigates, which is really interesting. It takes him to the Midlands and, you know, that's how the story unfolds. It's a remarkable story, isn't it, with these two strands brought together. And it was a massive media sensation at the time. But I think a lot of people today wouldn't have necessarily heard of Georgia Dalgy. Um, How did you first come across the story? Well, I sort of, you know, <laughs> I'm a journalist and I, I love these little hidden stories. It's what I do. Uh, my past books have been the same. Uh, and I did. Uh, and of course, I'm a great Arthur Conan Doyle fan. <laughs> uh, so those two strands came together. I read a little bit about him in some books about Asians. And I knew there'd been uh, Asians in Britain. And I knew that, you know, there'd been a miscarriage of justice. Uh, but of course, I just wanted to tell the whole story. It's a particularly interesting story, not just because of the way that the narrative and the story unfolds, Fold, but because it touches on a lot of themes about Victorian Britain, doesn't it? So 
of course, as you said, the, the case, it took place in the Midlands, uh, in, in a rural village. Can you describe what the town was like at the time and what that environment would have been like for an Indian family or mixed race family like the Adalgis? So it was a mining village in Staffordshire, South Staffordshire, and it was bleak as, you know, mining villages go. The vicar is uh, mostly doing funerals. You know, there's a lot of funerals. There's a lot of uh, babies he's burying who don't survive. It's a largely illiterate borough. And uh, in fact, later, um, Arthur Conan Doyle sort of describes this village and says, into this village uh, comes, you know, a colored uh, a clergyman and his half-caste family, and it's not going to go down well. So there is this village, It's there's a lot of illiteracy, there's a lot of poverty, there's miners, there's farmers. It's pretty bleak. And uh, uh, here is a coloured man talking to a sea of white faces. And I think actually that the story of George's father, Shapaji, is, is a really interesting prequel almost to this story. His story in itself deserves telling, doesn't it? I wonder if you can explain a little bit about how he came to be. Is it right that he was Britain's first South Asian vicar? Well, I think so, because I haven't come across anybody else. So I think I could take that. Uh, In 1876, it's quite remarkable uh, that he travels. So he is born in Bombay, uh, Mumbai now, as it is known. And uh, he's a Parsi from a very traditional Orthodox Parsi family. Uh, But he goes to St. Xavier's College. uh, And that is, of course, uh, run by, um, you know, it's a Christian college. And he is very influenced by Christianity. As a young boy, uh, he wants, he's keen to read Christian texts. And um, Parsis were actually targeted because they're very westernized. Uh, they were a business class, uh, they were westernized. And so the, the missionaries would target the Parsis because they felt we could get them to convert. And Shapurji is the direct result of that. Uh, he and his friend take a real interest in it. He runs away from his house because his family object to this. And he goes, he knocks on the door uh, of Reverend Wilson, uh, the local church, in Bombay, and he is uh, baptized eventually. And soon after he's baptized, his family, of course, uh, you know, they they sort of uh, uh, have nothing to do with him anymore. And he leaves. In a few years, he leaves for England. He uh, wants to train as a curate, and he thinks he'll go back, but he soon realizes that he'd never rise to a position in India. You know, the church is there, the vicars, uh, they, were, they were all English people. And so he feels maybe he should stay on in England. And he goes around and eventually he meets uh, 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 George's mother, Charlotte. She is also in the church circle. She is, uh, her father is a vicar and they fall in love. They're both in their thirties. And this marriage, which uh, sort of, you know, made for each other uh, uh, happens. And they land up uh, in Great Worley after a few tours. And uh, in 1876, he becomes the first South Asian vicar of this place. And uh, the same year, George is born. <laughs> so it's a lot of starts uh, in that in that time. It's hard to understand this case fully if you don't really know about the imperial context. So that's just something I wanted to ask you about, about attitudes to India, Indians and the empire in general in Britain at the time. Mm-hmm. So this, uh, you know, 1876 and on, you can imagine it's, 
you know, height of empire. It's Victoria is on the throne. Uh, the mutiny has happened. Uh, and, uh, you know, the direct power is now with Westminster. So the whole climate has changed. Um, and so there's two ways. So Indians are, you know, obviously they are the, they are the classes you rule over. Uh, that's one side. And the other thing is there is this mixed marriage happening. And mixed marriages, especially English women marrying dark Indian men, this was really frowned upon. And, you know, it was felt that they were diluting the purity of the English race um, and they were really targeted for attacks. So I think it was a mixture of this being a mixed marriage, uh, especially because a white woman, Charlotte, has married um, uh, Shapurji, and also, of course, them just being Indians, that uh, they are subjected to a lot of anonymous uh, hate mail from a very early stage. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that um, hate mail, the letters and the hoaxes that happened several years before the attacks on the horses did. What was in these letters and what impact did they have um, on the family, but also on the wider community? Well, these letters, they are chilling when you read them. They they start slowly, but they get more and more aggressive. Uh, well, you know, things are deposited outside the house, uh, excreta thrown in through the window and they are they threaten George Adalji. They somehow pick on George, who is at the time just a 12-year-old schoolboy. And they say, you know, your father, it's, a, it's all the abusive words that can be used. Uh, it's uh, full of crude sketches. Um, there's graffiti painted on their house outside saying the Adalji's are wicked. It's the typical race hate uh, scene that you can, you know, visualize. So this happens when he's just a schoolboy and then escalates to uh, when the killings take place some years later. So how did George find himself in the dock on trial for mutilating horses across the area? How did we get from letters and that campaign of hate launched against him and his family to the point that it, the suspicion was placed on him? Right. family. Right. So it's really interesting. It starts with a very, apart from the letters, there are small incidents that happen. A key is deposited. It's just a key. <laughs> it's the key that belongs to a grammar school, Walsall, that uh, Walsall Grammar School that um, uh, George does not even attend. But immediately the police, I mean, this is where, you know, you, we talk nowadays of unconscious bias and we talk of prejudice and, you know, these are such buzzwords now. But this is what was happening then. They immediately thought this family in the village, this odd looking boy, uh, they did it. <laughs> and even though this, this key is just left outside and, you know, it's handed over, they say he's the one who's stolen it. He doesn't even go to the school. The school is six miles away. Why would he go to a school, pick up a key, deposit it outside his door? Nothing makes sense. It defies logic. But there we are. There's the Sergeant Upton who says that he did it. And then he passes it on to his superiors. And as a 17-year-old, George is now already under the police radar. And that's why this bizarre key incident actually becomes significant. Because when, several years later, the killings happen and the anonymous letters start again, they say, that's him. He started again. He's done it. So it's quite a simple case of somebody that's different and stands out is immediately targeted as a, as a potential criminal. Um, I think it's quite interesting as a case study of how pol the police and police systems worked at the time. Um, 
What do you think it does tell us about the way that justice systems at the time worked? Well, this is happening in the Midlands, so I couldn't do a sweeping generalization of all of England, of course. Uh, but, you know, cases were there all over to see that there is prejudice. If there is a black man in the village and or, or even in the town and there's a crime that happens, the first suspect will be the black boy in the in the area. And that is something that does keep happening. I mean, it happens now. As I was reading this book, I was just thinking, goodness, this was over 100 years ago, but this is still happening. Um, but yes, um, so this particular police force, the Staffordshire Police Force, they are, um, you know, the, at the head is Captain Anson. And it's quite important to see his background because he's an aristocrat. He is rooted in the imperial system. His family uh, have served it, were there in the mutiny in India. Uh, he's, you know, Lord Admiral of the Navy. They've traveled around. They've been to China. They have worked in all the you know, the centers of the colony, the major centers. And his house is full of treasures from, from China and, uh, you know, the colonies. And so this, this mentality, this attitude, he looks down on the vicar. He never even pays him a visit to see, you know, what is happening in this town? Why is this vicar so troubled? He, he just says he finds it absurd that this Hindu vicar, Hindu in quotes, uh, because he's not a Hindu, he is actually, he's a Parsi convert to Christianity. Uh, but he says, um, you know, how this man who can barely speak English has become, you know, the vicar of a white community to preach to English people. It is, you know, he cannot reconcile that this is happening. Who is this black person to give the word of God to, you know, uh, a, vicar, a whole uh, parish of white people. So he he is dismissive of uh, the vicar. Uh, he has nothing but contempt for the white woman who married him. And of course, George, <laughs> he dislikes George. He is convinced uh, without any proof that he is the one who's been doing, writing letters. They accuse George of writing letters to himself. Uh, and he's convinced later that he's the one who's mutilating horses. And he becomes, doesn't he, through through the story, he kind of becomes this the villain of the piece, really. He's almost like the the Moriarty to Conan Doyle's homes, and they're trying to outwit each other and um, play off different pieces of evidence. But it's remarkable how entrenched his thoughts were in that he was so keen to to stick with his initial ideas about the case, which was that George must have been involved. Yeah, he is inflexible right from the start. He's made up his mind, even like. You know, I write in the book that George was sentenced even before he stepped in the dock. They, they'd made up their minds. It took 55 minutes for the jury to pronounce him guilty. And uh, Captain Anson has been directing this whole trial from behind. He is the one. He remains completely inflexible. And so later when the, when the committee, you know, the Home Office Committee look into it again, he just refuses to budge. He just holds, holds to his position right till the end. <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast. You know, Agatha Christie also always said that, you know, there was stuff happening in these pretty chocolate box villages that, uh, you know, reveal crime. So I think there was the, the urge of a crime writer to get into this. And uh, of course, it was just a fascinating case. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. 
That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I wonder if it would be worth mentioning here, um, what reasons the police did give um, during the trial for George's guilt? What evidence did they present? Right. So the the evidence uh, is presented. Uh, it's it is almost laughable. So they pick up, they go to his house and they pick up a pair of boots, which is muddy. I mean, it's been raining. Of course, his boots will be muddy. Uh, they pick up um, a, a coat, which they say has horse hairs on it and it is wet. And they go to his room and take out um, some razors, four razors, and they say, oh, the razors are wet. <laughs> now, um, that is the purely circumstantial evidence that they present before the jury saying, and George says that, um, you know, when they take the coat, he says he never wore this coat outside. It was a coat which he wore around the house and the grounds. Uh, and uh, then they say there's horsehairs on it. Well, there were no horsehairs when the family gave it. They take it to the window, they check, and they say, there are no horsehairs. This is a thread. Uh, but the police say, no, they are horsehairs. So they go. And what happens is that when somewhere in transit, as this coat and these wet boots are taken, um, they've also cut a piece of hide from the dead horse. And according to Arthur and Doyle, they haven't, you know, as police evidence, they haven't put them in different sealed bags. They've just put everything together. So horsehairs get transferred from the skin onto the jacket. And at the trial, they count 17 horsehairs. <laughs> and, you know, that's supposed to be evidence. So it was very, very flimsy evidence. It was evidence that would not even be admitted into court in normal circumstances. But the trial happens in a very 
in a low court. So it's court two of Staffordshire. And that's where very small crimes are tried, not something that has been quite a sensation and covered in the national media. So uh, it's it's all bizarre, really. So I wanted to ask you about the national media, because I think that's one of the most interesting aspects of the book is the ways in which the media portrayed George. And they were very racialized in the ways that they spoke about him, especially during the trial. But then also the ways that they decided to then do a 180 and flip to his side when um, Conan Doyle decided to throw his weight around and get involved. Yes, absolutely. It just shows what a little bit of, you know, celebrity backing can do. And Conan Doyle, uh, you know, he, hats off to him, he goes to uh, Great Whirly, he sits there, he, he interviews people, he does a full investigation. And when he comes back, he writes in the Daily Telegraph, he writes a detailed article refuting every point of evidence that uh, happens. You know, refuting this wet coat, uh, saying how these horses could have been transferred. And he brings up a very important point which had not been brought up at the trial at all. And this is the fact that George Adalji was severely myopic. And that is why he had these bulging eyes, which made him look a little, you know, different from other schoolboys. He had to read everything really close up. So uh, Conan Doyle says that there was no way that a person who is such bad vision would have been able to cross these fields in the dark at night. And it was a particularly rainy August day. Uh, There's no way he could have gone. He's not somebody who's familiar with animals. He works as a lawyer in Birmingham. He would not have been able to go there, slash these animals at night. And uh, anyway, what was the weapon? There's nothing's been found. These tiny razors could not have done the job. So, you know, he argues everything. And of course, this is published in the Daily Telegraph. It's published all over the country. It's published in the US. Suddenly, George is a sensation, you know, and this trial and Arthur Conan Doyle is, uh, he compares it to the Dreyfus affair. And which happened in France, which showed anti, you know, anti-Semitism uh, when uh, a Jewish officer in the French army is is accused of betraying secrets, and it's only done done because he's Jewish. And later they discover that it was done by a French officer. Uh, and uh, so he he compares this Dreyfus case, and he says that happened to a Jew. This is happening because he's a Parsi, and uh, there's suddenly with Arthur Conan Doyle, you know, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle backing him like this, arguing every point, there's a swing in the mood. Yeah, and and Conan Doyle really did invest his time and money in this case, didn't he? And I wanted to just ask you about what was going on in his life at the time that this trial um, became known to him. And why was he so motivated to really throw himself into it in the way that he did? Mm-hmm. So actually, this is really interesting. Now, this is all happening. Um, Arthur Conan Doyle had, uh, you know, we all know he wrote his Sherlock Holmes books, and then he got fed up of Sherlock Holmes. And he said, I'm going to get rid of him. And he threw him down the Reichenbach Falls and said, that's the end of uh, Holmes. But of course, he had to bring him back because, you know, people refused to um, go away, you know, believe that Holmes was dead. And he does that. So 1902 is when he publishes his most famous book, The Hound of Baskerville. And uh, suddenly there's this huge success. 1902 is just the year that 
you know, everything is going to start again for um, George Adalji. Everything's going to go wrong. So while Arthur Conan Doyle is really, you know, at his peak, uh, things are going wrong with George Adalji. He is in prison. Um, Arthur Conan Doyle, you know, revives uh, Sherlock Holmes, writes a lot of mysteries over the next few years. Uh, George is in prison at this time. Uh, three years later, when George comes out in 1906, um, this is a time of tragedy in Arthur Conan Doyle's life. His wife, uh, uh, Louise, uh, he used to call her Tui, had died. And after several years uh, of tuberculosis, he takes her to Switzerland. He does everything he can, but she dies. And uh, so it's not just her death that's uh, affecting him. It's also guilt. Because while Tui was ill, he had fallen in love with this much younger woman, a very vibrant lady called Jean Leckie. And he, you know, is wrought by guilt as well. Because uh, while Tui is dead, he's mourning for her. He knows he's now free to marry Jean and um, he they postpone it for a year. So it's at this period of his life when he is, you know, he is feeling very dark, very depressed. Uh, suddenly, Adalji and this case falls into his lap and he jumps into it with all his energy. And it, it gives him a lease of life. It gives him something to do. And suddenly, you know, supporting the underdog, becoming a sort of cause celebre uh, all around, that that really, um, you know, keeps him going as well. So it's two things happening in two people's lives, which is also very interesting. So he was just really motivated by a wrong that he thought needed to be set right. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Now, you know, let's not forget Arthur Conan Doyle is very much a figure of the establishment as well. He is, uh, he's been knighted, you know, he is Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. He's written a book about the Boer War, which was very controversial in liberal circles, but he justifies it. And so he is, uh, you know, after which he is knighted. So he is part of the establishment. But again, the thing of being part of the establishment is that he rises to this, you know, English justice is what sees us. It's this feeling that, you know, this wrong has happened. The miscarriage of justice has to be uh, dealt with. And this is part of being English is that we have the best justice system. And uh, I think so that really drives him. And what's really interesting is that you think, yeah, okay, he obviously plotted these really uh, elaborate mysteries for Sherlock Holmes, but he didn't actually have any experience of investigating a real crime. Is that correct? Absolutely. This is the first one he actually does himself, which is um, amazing because, well, I won't reveal everything, but yes, the great writer does trip up. (laughs) And also there is a cat and mouse game going on between Anson And so the police and Arthur Conan Doyle, it's pretty crazy. The police actually lay false trails for him and they both make it personal. Well, the police answer makes it even more personal. Um, Arthur Conan Doyle tries to help him with leads because he's really keen that this case is actually dealt with. But Anson is stubborn and Anson will not be taught policing by a writer of fiction. And so this becomes an ego uh, thing for him. And uh, yeah, it just gets pretty intense. It was intriguing to read how a lot of people essentially conflated Conan Doyle with Sherlock Holmes, that people wrote to him to help solve their mysteries in life. Yeah, this is something that actually still keeps happening. So there is the museum, uh, the Sherlock Holmes Museum in Baker Street. And I have visited there and there are letters there that they display. And they are 
they are from today and they say that there are people writing to Sherlock Holmes from Japan and from maybe they do it for fun maybe they still think he's alive who knows but they do get letters saying you know was looking for help with crimes one of the things that really made him snap against his own you know creation was when the delivery of shirts for Arthur Conan Doyle came marked to Sherlock Holmes and he said that's it I you know I have lived in this man's shadow now for too long yeah, it's interesting to to think about what it was about George's letter that made him take the case on when he had so many requests. There must have been something in it that really um, appealed to him. I think so. I think it was the fact that uh, this was an Indian man over here. Uh, he knew that the father was the vicar. There were so many interesting angles. And you could see the, the writer in him wanting to dig deep and find out, you know, what happened in this village? Why, you know... What what made them try this man who clearly didn't do this? And the case itself is just so strange, isn't it? With the letters, the kind of rambling, crazed letters, anonymous um, parcels and the mutilating of horses with seemingly no motive. I can see why it would be an intriguing one to take on. It's not a straightforward crime of passion, for example, is it? No, no, absolutely. There's so many angles. And uh, it was, you know, it's one of those dark mysteries uh, in the countryside. And uh, I think there is, well, you know, Arthur Conan Doyle, he writes, I mean, his his main character, his Sherlock Holmes once says that there are, you know, things, cruel things that happen in the countryside. It's not as, you know, about beneath this calm and idyllic thing, there is there are things stirring. And I think, I think crime writers do believe in that. I think... Um, you know, Agatha Christie also always said that, you know, there was stuff happening in these pretty chocolate box villages that, uh, you know, reveal crime. So I think there was the the urge of a crime writer to get into this. And uh, of course, it was just a fascinating case. How was it investigating this crime from a 21st century perspective? Um, you managed to go into incredible detail but what sources are still available? Do we still have a lot of the the letters that the Adalji family was sent, for example? Mm-hmm. So, yes, these letters are there, uh, you know, in the archives to be seen in their full horror. Uh, the scraps of paper that were thrown in. Uh, I've carried some of the images in the book. Um, and also what to me, what was really new material that emerged was um, uh, Anson's uh, uh, service files and the letters between them, which were in, you know, with the family. And they came up for auction uh, in 2015. And that is when I really started my research because I felt, oh my God, these letters will have a lot. And they show the clash between Anson and Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, and they are amazing letters. What do you think that the legacy of this case was? Did it have any lasting impact? Um, the the main legacy of this case is that uh, they started it started the the criminal appeal uh, uh, court. So previous to this, you could not go. There was no appeal if you were sentenced. That was it, uh, which is why they had to go to the home office. You know, there was no appeal system. Uh, but after this, in 1907, it's it actually lays the foundation of the criminal appeal court. So that is something that, you know, you have to thank George Dalji for. Finally, I was just intrigued to hear how you think this fits into perhaps a bigger story about race and injustice in Britain. Well, you know, what struck me, as I've said before, is that how 
<laughs> this feels like it could be happening today. The newspaper reports describing George as this odd man, this his debased jaw, his oriental dark face. It was like, uh, you know, the, the fear of foreigners that we saw here. Uh, we've seen what happened uh, all of last year, Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, we saw the sort of reporting. We saw the, you know, the culture wars that started it all. And uh, to me, it all felt that this is, you know, I'd written the book, but I just felt, my goodness, this just continues. So I think what happened over 100 years ago is still in different forms is still happening. So anonymous letters. Now we have hate mail on emails. We have trolls. We, It's a whole world that seems to continuously go on. Uh, but, you know, there are those that do fight it. And I mean, you, have, you can't just get all bleak and depressed. So it was really nice to see that even at that time, even before Arthur Conan Doyle came on the scene, there were all those who supported um, George and they, uh, you know, had a plea for him. So there are, while there's all these trolls, I always like to feel that there's still, you know, the people out there who believe in, you know, equality and decency of, you know, everybody, sort of everybody being the same, really. That was Shrabani Basu. Her book about the Georgia Dalji case, The Mystery of the Party Lawyer, is out now, published by Bloomsbury. And you can find a buying link in the show notes of this episode. I spoke to Shrabani for the April issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now and also includes features on Cleopatra, Neanderthals, the British Empire and Britain's greatest prime ministers. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tomorrow, we'll have the next episode in our Bayo Tapestry series. (laughs) 